Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Ben Hartwig. This week, Pastor Ben continues his series in the book of Ephesians. In this sermon, the point is made that we should be praying for the people in our lives because we are either a witness to them or they are a brother or sister in Christ. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3 as Pastor Ben delivers his message titled, Living in Spiritual Strength. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll continue, pick up where we left off. In Ephesians chapter 3, uh, we're going to begin uh, at verse 7. We're actually looking at verses 14 through 21. Now, as we go into this, um, I want to say that if uh, you were not here last week and heard the message concerning the doctrine of original sin you need to go listen to that because what I'm going to say is that's a good basis for what we're going to talk about here. And I guess the only reason I really say that is because that message was a good basis for pretty much everything and the way that you view everything. Because um, if we don't have the right view of original sin, more specifically our own sin, and where are we at, where we are, we will not have a proper view of anything else. And uh, so as we look at this, I would say... Um, if you did not hear the message last week, you need to go listen to it. If you were here and you heard the message last week, go listen to it again uh, because uh, it was a uh, uh, wonderful treatment of the doctrine of original sin. So look at verse 7, chapter 3, and we will begin reading there. Paul writes there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now for our passage here at hand. So, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we, that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, for everything that we have, Lord, comes from you. And while we should recognize this, Father, we need to see very clearly that any power that we are going to have must be recognized in our own weakness, knowing, Father, that we are indeed weak, that we are powerless outside of you. And then, Father, when we come to a realization of these things in our weakness, in our sin, that, Father, it is then that we will be powerful and useful for you, that we will be bringing glory to you as we ought. Father, we ask that you'd speak to us through your word, that you would um, make us useful for you, and Father, that you would indeed give us power. Lord, teach us this morning. We thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we begin there at verse 14, and we see um, this, for this reason, it says there, for this reason. And so if we're going to look at that, you know, we often talk about the therefores and the for this reason and, and these things that link us back. And we do need to 
know what he's linking us back to if we're going to get a grip on what we've got here. So when we do this, we'll see this again in verse 1 of chapter 3. We see a therefore back in verse 11 of chapter 2. And we see yet another for this reason in verse 15. Yes, verse 15 of chapter 1. Now, we could obviously try to daisy chain all this together and, and, and go and hit every one of these and be here all afternoon. Uh, but I thought we would just be, for brevity's sake, we'll look at, again, the purpose of the letter and what Paul is doing here. We should go back to this main idea again as what is being driven at in this letter. Uh, we look back and forward for that matter, uh, and what we recognize is that Christ has reconciled creation to himself. He has reconciled creation to his Father, and in doing that, he has united all peoples of all nations, Jews and Gentiles, that's hit on in this book, right? We'll talk about that later. But he has reconciled all peoples to himself, to his, uh, to his Father, united these people from nations and one another where? In his church, right? This was accomplished through the powerful working of the triune God. We learn in this letter that Paul writes to the Ephesians that these things are recognized by faith, faith alone, through His grace. And then I'll say, for this reason, Christians then, you and I, for this reason, we are to be living lives that are a fitting tribute to our gratitude of our great Lord. As what? As his workmanship, right? So that's the foundation that we turn to is Paul's prayer here, which is what this is. Paul's prayer for those who would see this letter, that being the Ephesians and also you and I, that we would see this, that we would have the spiritual strength and insight to the power of the Creator. This is about power from God, getting to the fullness of God, at least to the best of our abilities. No, we can't get the entirety of the fullness of God. We don't have that ability in our because we're finite, right? But to the best of our ability and then applying that power from God. Now, I'm going to quickly illustrate this. Illustrations fall short sometimes, but I'm going to make an attempt at illustrating this. Whenever I was uh, about 12 years old, I knew a, a freakish amount about cars, okay? I was into cars and it was just it was it was a little weird actually and and but I I knew a lot about cars and and there was a guy that lived down the road from me he was an older fella at that time but his wife had passed away young from cancer and then he kind of hit this whole midlife crisis thing and he bought a pair of uh, 1976 Camaros and so since I was into cars I kind of hung out with Al and we hung out he taught me more stuff and I learned all this stuff. I mean I was you know 12 years old or 11 years old somewhere there, I could tell you everything about a, a four-cycle engine, a, you know, what was happening in the intake stroke, the power stroke, the compression stroke, the exhaust stroke. I could tell you what was going on, and uh, it, was, it was weird, okay? I could, uh, I could rattle off all the bore and stroke of every small block and big block Chevy engine. It, it, again, it was weird and ultimately very useless. But <laughs> at that point in my life, I had never driven a car, Okay? I'd never driven a car, and, and actually hanging out with Al um, and, and having him as my, well, I guess, encouragement, uh, it wouldn't have been safe for me to do so, uh, having him as what I have witnessed uh, driving around. But I'd never driven one, and it, again, it would be, have been dangerous to put me behind the wheel. But here's the thing. We can read the Bible, right? We can read the Bible, and you know what I'm getting at. We can read the Bible. We can know a great deal about the Bible. We can know uh, doctrine. We can listen to a message like Pastor Josh brought last week on original sin. We can listen to that, and we can say, you know, that makes sense. That makes sense. I understand that. I get that because what happened there is it was laid out very simply for us. You took something very complex as original sin. I'm going to hit on that a lot because it's fresh in our minds from last week. Take something as complex as what's going on there and lay it out to where a child can understand it. And yet I'll be like, yeah, I get it, but I really don't want to grapple with my sin like that. I don't want to have to deal with that. So we could take all the interpretation, we could take all the moral standards and then not do anything with that, not live by that, not repent and follow Christ. We can do all that. It's like, you know, you're better off to be the guy that gets in the car 
turns the key or hits the button now, that nonsense of hitting the button, but you could do that and then this, this noise comes from under the hood. A miracle happens, you just put it in gear and you drive it off and you don't really know what happened. But you're better off to be that guy. You're better off to hear the gospel, understand the fundamentals of the gospel, know that, yeah, God is holy, I'm not, Jesus is the answer, and I need to repent and follow him. You're better off to be that guy and then grow, obviously. You learn more as you go, right? But you're better off to be that guy than to know all of this stuff, to hear all of this stuff, and then be like, nah, I don't think so. I don't think that I'm going to do that. You know, I could have taken all that stuff that I knew about something as, you know, ultimately, eternally useless and not applied in any way, not even done something as so menial as changing my own oil, right? But be better off just to be the guy that gets in, hits the button. Oh, miracles happen. I'm going to drive away now, right? But so many people, they hear this. I once heard a, uh, a professor that I had years ago was talking about this guy that sat under the teaching of John Stott for years and never followed Christ, ever. And he went on. There was a different illustration, different thing that he was applying that to. But I, I, I just, you know, this isn't about, but we see Jesus himself, right? He taught, and there were those that would not listen. So my pleading is that we take all of these things that we're taught, all these things that we're here, and we take them and we apply them, right? That, you know, we get them, we hear them backwards and forwards, and that we actually live by them. That we understand that as we hear this, that it's not just, oh, well, I get to escape hell and go to heaven. Well, that may be true in the gospel, you get to escape hell and go to heaven, but that's not what this is about. You get God, right? You obtain God in Christ, the creator. This is the provider of salvation. Now, Paul had spent three chapters, we have spent three chapters of being told who we are in Christ, right? That's a reoccurring thing in Ephesians, knowing who we are in Christ. And I don't want to be guilty as your brother in Christ of getting to this point and telling, you know, as we've spent three chapters here of telling you who we are in Christ and then here not urging to live like it, right? Not urging us to live like it, not urging us to grasp the power of God and then living in that power. And I don't mean in some hokey Joel Osteen kind of way either. That's not what we're talking about here, right? We have people among us here in this family, in this church family, that are hurting, that are suffering, right? I have a few in my mind right now, but we have people that are hurting and suffering. And this matter is important for all of us. Now, it especially hits home for you if you're in the midst of a trial, but it doesn't matter what you know if you aren't going to do anything with that. It's not that we just know that there is spiritual power. It's that we would use it. You have to if you're going to be what we'll call a full-functioning Christian, for lack of something better. But the passage that we have at hand is a plea to God. Paul is pleading. He's struggling. He's pleading with God that it, it also is a plea to believers. It's a plea to his readers. It's a plea to us. Paul pleads with us to respond to God's sovereign provision. He pleads with God to motivate us to do it. Because God is not just the provider, but is also the initiator. He is the motivator. Paul pleads with God to activate the power of the believer so that we can become faithful children and then glorify our Heavenly Father. So the plea then is for the inner strength of the Spirit, the indwelling of Christ in the heart, for the love to permeate their lives and for them to have then the fullness, live in the fullness of God things being lived and things to be proclaimed. So if we come to get all this, this all-powerful God that we're approaching, then what we should have already gotten is just how weak and powerless that we are, right? We should have already got that. But when we get that, it is then at that point that we can begin to live in this. As soon as I see how weak I am, then I begin to see how all-powerful, omnipotent, how 
powerful God as we might think at this point that Paul, as he's going through this and as we understand this and who I am in light of a holy God, that Paul might address God as the eternal king of glory, right? That he might begin an address and a prayer with God as the eternal king of glory or something like this. But remember, if you are actually in Christ, if you are truly in Christ, you've already essentially had your face in the mud, right? You have come to the point where you've put your face in the mud. But now you're a disciple. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't humble yourself. This doesn't mean that you don't bring yourself low. This doesn't mean that if you were faced with God right now, that you wouldn't be able to find a place low enough to put yourself in His presence. But we also know that now we're in Christ. Now we're one of His. Now we're a disciple. And now we can come to God differently. We come to God as a Father. Because in Christ, it's who He is to us, right? He is... Our Father. And so like Paul, we approach the Father with boldness. We approach with a certain confidence, not a pompous arrogance. We recognize that knowing that He is more willing for His children to come to Him than we are of going to Him, right? Paul knows that God has been waiting with a heart that has love that is ready to pour out on us. Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, that's what he says. He's not prescribing the only position for prayer, right? We know that there's others, but what he's doing is he is, there's, there's a passion here, there's an emotion here, there's a, there's, a, there's a humility here on Paul's part. It's a reverence for the glory of his Creator. So the central request for this prayer was that God would strengthen them, he says, strengthen us, that He would strengthen them with power through His Spirit in the inner man. If you notice, almost every prayer of Paul's that is recorded is for the spiritual welfare of other people. Not himself, but of others. Even whenever he was persecuted, when he was imprisoned, he was in need of lots of stuff for his own welfare. Not fancy stuff, just provision for life, right? When he was in need of stuff for his own welfare, he pray, prayed for his fellow believers that they might be spiritually protected, that they might be strengthened. Even when he prayed for himself, it was normally for what? Being able to serve these people better, right? To be able to serve his Lord better, to be able to serve the Lord's people better. This is something for us to take note of whenever we're pleading with God. And, you know, we need to be like Paul, find ourselves like Paul, and that we need to have an overriding sensitivity to the spiritual needs of others, the need of salvation for the unsaved, the protection and the growth for those who are indeed saved, you being sensitive to the spiritual needs of your spouse, your kids, uh, fellow believers, those around you. As a matter of fact, I, I don't say this as a person who does this perfectly because I don't. I'm one who needs to do better at it, but I think that we should pray for anybody that we come into contact with. Well, that's a lot of people. Yeah, it, it, depending on who you are and what you do, it could be a, a, a whole bunch of people. But as I thought about this and as I wrote this down on paper, I, I actually asked myself, do I really want to say something like that? That's a big task. Every single person that we come in contact with, but here's the deal. We are either to that person, maybe the only witness that they have, or they're our brother and sister in Christ. One or the other. They're one of two things. Either we are a witness to them or we're a brother or sister to them. So prayer in the Spirit, the utilization of the Spirit, is something that needs to be a constant effort in daily living. It needs to be something that we are continually after. Something as simple as whenever I run into the guy at work that uh, he is a... Uh, he's, he's, He's a janitor. I know the guy. He's also a pastor. Um, but I learned that through talking with the guy. He's the guy that cleans up. Like I say, he's also a pastor, but he's a brother to me, right? So this is the guy I should pray for. Then the other guy who got fired at work um, because uh, he was came to work drunk. Um, but he's a guy that I need to be praying for, right? And need to be conversing with. That's who we deal with every day, both of those. And it needs to be a constant thing for us. 
We have people right here, again, in our family among us that are hurting, and we need to be interceding for them. Now, by the way, and, and this depends on the way we're, we're kind of foundationed, right? Because whenever it comes to appreciating spiritual riches and then appreciating material riches, how we're foundationed makes a difference. And, and so as we, as we look at something like that and, and how we live in, in daily living, how we do these things, um, because when we think of material riches, and, and, and whether you feel like you're wealthy or not, I'm going to tell you that you are. I don't care who you are sitting in this room. On a world scale, you have stupid amounts of money, okay? Um, I don't care who you are in this room. But on a world scale, that's where we sit, all right? So um, whenever we look at these things and we look at the people that we come into contact with and, and we, an appreciation for spiritual riches. And again, how we are foundationed is the difference in how we handle these things. Whether we have a lot of money or not by Western standards, because frankly we all do, but whether we have a lot of money or not by Western standards, you have a comprehension of what material wealth is like. Because either you have it or you've seen it. One or the other. We have a taste of it in the things that we do possess, and we see the multitude of things that people that are wealthy, which, again, I, I get that, but I'm, that wealthy people enjoy, right? Spiritual riches, on the other hand, sometimes they're not so obvious. I'll go ahead and say they're not attractive at all to the natural man. Spiritual riches aren't even attractive to the natural man. I'll go so far as to say they're not attractive to disobedient Christians. Make sure, then, that as we look at every single person that we deal with on a daily basis, as we look at them, we have to make sure that our foundation is laid correctly. And then we'll see things correctly. We'll see those people correctly. They don't become a way just to serve us or what they're doing for us or how they are, um, what they're doing, how it applies to us. But then we begin to see things correctly. More importantly, we see individuals correctly. Paul mentions the spiritual riches of his glory here. And to the spiritual believer, the, the believer in Christ, the disciple of Jesus, they are rich indeed. We have a spiritual wealth and we already possess these riches. We have to recognize that. In light of this, we recognize that Paul was concerned uh, too for physical health of, of the believers, right? He was concerned. He had physical concerns for people, right? He was used by God to bring healing to a lot of people. He was concerned for the Jerusalem saints that had no food. But he knew, and, and we have to glean from this, I think, he knew that the outer man was destined to perish, right? He all the while had that on his mind, even though he was concerned for physical needs and he was concerned that they would just be able to eat because these people were seriously impoverished. He, was, he always recognized that while that is true, the outer man is perishing. This is a temporary housing for that which is actually very, very significant, and that is the inner man, right? Only God can reach in to that inner man. And that is just where God truly wants to work, right? That's what God truly cares about. Not that He won't cure our physical ailments, but this is where He really wants to work. It begins at salvation, therefore, um, and, th and thereafter, the Spirit changes and grows the inner man. While the physical man becomes weaker with age, the inner man should grow continually stronger and stronger with power in the spirit. When I was young, um, a little kid, seven, eight years old, I often, I, you know, I was, I was not a believer. I was not raised in church, but on the, the times that I did go to church, I always looked at the church as it was a place where old people were. You know, there was a lot of gray hair and no hair in the church, right? And, and so that's what I thought. I mean, seriously, I, I look at it and that's what I thought. And I thought, well, this is a place for older folks. But I think what happens is, is older folks, as they grow and they are wiser and they realize that they are getting weaker and they are recognizing their pains and their ailments and they see the serious, these older believers see the significance of the fact that I am to be living for Christ. I am to, they, they, get, they get it better than we do whenever we're younger. 
than whenever we're 15 and whenever we're 25. Because whenever I'm 20 years old in the prime of my life, I'm not going to die. Right? Who, when they're 20 years old, thinks they're going to die? They don't. They don't think about it. Why? I'm in the prime of my life. Strong. I feel good. My back doesn't hurt. I can walk like a normal person. I don't wince when I straighten my legs out. I mean, stuff like that, right? So you do that, but whenever you get older, you realize, I am weak. I need God. And whenever I see how weak I am, then I, that, that enables us to grow because when I'm 20, I'm an idiot, right? And so as I grow, I learn. I become less, I should become less and less of an idiot. I know it's kind of harsh, but that's where I'm at, right? I become less and less... I become more knowledgeable of the fact of who I really am and that I am weak and that I need him. And so it's then whenever I see that, because you see, you know, people talk about their grandma, man, my grandma, you know, when she prays, things happen, right? When my grandma prays, things, you know why? Because <laughs> she gets it, right? She gets it. She knows what's important. She has seen it. And so we continually feed on the Word of God. We seek the Spirit's will in the decisions of our lives. And the spiritual power comes when we submit to God's Word, when we submit to the Spirit. And then it should look like a decreasing frequency of sin, right? It should be a decreasing frequency of sin. We see, experience the indwelling of Christ. You know, prayer is serious. It's something else that maybe whenever we're younger, we don't do as we ought to do because, well, everything, you know, I'm so young and wonderful and everything's going so great. Do I, do I really need to spend any time in prayer? Prayer is serious. Prayer is war. And, and, and we, we need to take it more seriously than we do. I need to take it more seriously than I do. We all need to. This is serious. War is serious. You look at what Paul does. Yes, he's looking for us to be bold. He's looking for us to be confident. He asks... Uh, as we should ask for those around us to give uh, for God to give every spiritual enablement they did not already use and apply it apply it as a spiritual resource. Prayer is a combative thing. It's combat with Satan. It's combat with forces of evil, demonic powers. It's it's combat with our own wicked flesh. By the way, it's combat with. Uh, with those spiritual forces of evil that are all around us. And I don't want to say that it's, I'm not going to say it's combat with God. I don't like to use that word. But there is a struggle with God. We do struggle with God in prayer. In Genesis 32, I told Logan this morning, if you missed his Sunday school lesson, shame on you. Um, it was very good. And, uh, but I told him that uh, good material is stolen material. So I'm going to steal some of this from Logan and then expand upon it just a, a little bit from how I'm going to use it here. And uh, in Genesis 32, verse 24, Jacob. Jacob struggles with God, right? Jacob struggles with God. Jacob was left alone. This is verse 24, chapter 33, 32, excuse me, 32. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of this place, Peniel, for, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Struggled with God. Moses struggled with God. Jesus struggled with God in a similar way. And we see it with Paul. Paul struggled with with God. Paul was concerned, yeah, for physical needs, for the health of the believers. He was used by God to bring healing to those many people. But, and, and again, as I've mentioned, those destitute saints in Jerusalem that he worked tireless, tirelessly to uh, uh, raise money for them, just to have basic stuff, right? Food. But there was an understanding, again, that I go back to that outward. Man perishing, 
the, the temporary housing. This is why we can say with Paul that we don't lose heart and that while the outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. Paul was who he was because he suffered greatly. Paul would not have been the guy that he was if he would not have suffered the way that he did. That should, that, that grows us closer. It should be growing us closer. This is why the psychiatry, psychology of our modern day, it falls so short. There's a reason why these folks have no answers. It's because they're dealing, if you're not a biblical counselor, starting with sin and the sin nature, right? They're trying to address what is actually inner man problems using the outside, right? They will say man is flawed. They'll normally say man is flawed. At least we at least hope they go there. Some of them don't, but, but they won't get at the sin of man. The flaw is the inner man, and only God can reach in and cure the inner man beginning with salvation. But even after that, it continues at this inner man because that is where spiritual life exists, and that's where you and I must actually continue to grow. Well, the physical man becomes weaker. With time, with age, the inner spiritual man, as I said, grows stronger. That there is a strength that comes, power in the spirit. The obedient, the effective, the productive disciple of Christ must be conscious of the spirit, filled with the spirit, controlled by the spirit. And so with that we turn to the indwelling of Christ then. He gets to this indwelling of Christ and beyond measure, it's desirable beyond measure that we as believers should keep the person of Jesus Christ constantly before us to stir up our love for Him, to grow in our knowledge of Him. And, you know, we ought to, people spend so much time and money on their education. You know, we think of, of education after high school and the amount of time and money that gets put into that, but yet there is something so much more important, and that is that you know, in light of that, being a scholar of, of, of Jesus, of, of being a student of the cross, being a student of Christ, a degree, if you will, in the learning of the cross. And, but just to have Jesus always near, this, the, the heart to be full of Him, welling up with His love, running over. So here the apostle says that Christ may dwell in your hearts. And where does He want Jesus to be? As Paul gets into this, where is he wanting Christ to be? You do not get any closer to you than your heart, right? You know, we often talk about the head knowledge, the heart knowledge. You hear that, and, and, and that's, there's, there's something to that, right? So as we already said, if we look at the doctrine of original sin, and we say, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense, and that's true, and that was very simply explained, and, and it, but, meh, Right? He wants Christ to be in the heart, right? He wants us to have this heart knowledge of this is who Christ is, that He is Lord. He is a permanent resident of our inmost being, never to leave again. So if, our, if, if, this, if this house, uh, if this was a house, then the best room would be the heart, right? That'd be the best room in the house. That's where the affections, that's where everything resides, Everything that matters, that's where it resides, right? We should long to love Christ in an enduring way. It's not some love that flames out, flames up, then dies out and, and, and into the darkness. This is, a, this is different. This is a flame that is fed by, by a, a sacred fuel, an eternal uh, fuel. This is accomplished by faith. If faith is not strong, love will not be fervent. This is like you know, a flower and the root of the flower. It's, it, it, that root has to be healthy or the blossom just will not be there, right? Faith being the root, love being that blossom. You look at verse 17 in chapter 3. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. So we realize that Jesus cannot be our heart's love, if you will, uh, unless we have a firm hold of them by our heart's faith, right? Pray 
that you may not just always trust by faith, but that because of that faith, you'll actually love Him. That He will be the adoration. If your love is cold, it's almost guaranteed that your faith is not where it needs to be. The abundance of the love of God is yours. We just have to tap into this. The house needs to be clean. The heart needs to be clean, though, right? Let me illustrate that. When I was um, doing hospice work, um, you know, death is no respecter of persons, right? And so whenever you do hospice work, you get both ends of the socioeconomic spectrum. And you get all kinds of people, right? Because, again, death is no respecter of persons. You have to die no matter who you are. You run into all kinds of folks, and, and there were some places that you would go that you would be afraid that you would never get out of because they were so welcoming, and they, they were so glad that you were there. And um, I, I know I, I had one fellow that uh, uh, he has passed some time ago now, but I had uh, this one fellow, you would come to his house, um, and the, we had a hospital bed there in his living room, and his daughter would have a chair for me there and a little table for my pie and my coffee. Now, this was a very welcoming environment. It's very difficult to get out of sometimes because you got, you got to, I mean, you're, you're actually working. You don't want to be anymore because you're sitting here with this guy, a World War II vet who's just awesome to talk to, uh, but you want to just, you got you to move on sometime. Very welcoming place, right? set me up a very welcoming environment. And every time I pulled into the driveway, from the time I sat in the driveway, and I knew this was going to be an enjoyable visit. And he would be laying there in that bed, and man, he'd pop up out of that bed, hey, come on in, sit down, you know. It's like visiting Grandpa. I mean, it was great, right? Now, then there were other places that you would go. That was a very welcoming environment, right? But then there was other places that, uh, that you would go. There was one place that I would arrive, and you would get out of the car in the driveway and you could literally smell the house. Now, this is the point where it doesn't become as welcoming, right? And you walk around to the back of the house there and the door's cracked open about that far and it stayed open all the time so the cats could go in and out of the house as they pleased. There was a pile of trash at the back door on the porch that was as big as this area right here, probably 15, 20 bags of trash. And as you walk by, the cats would scurry around the trash like like rats, right? And then you would walk in, and this is where the nurses that I worked with said, hey, dummy, think about this for a second. This is why you put Vicks in your car, because you put this on your nose, and then you don't smell that anymore. But I, one day I was describing to the, the nurse that went into this, I said, I, I, it's nauseating when you walk. There's a pile of soiled laundry that was always there. It never moved. That was at the back door. There was holes in the floor. Um, and it was just not, you weren't welcome to sit down and you weren't sure that you really wanted to. But you were here for a reason and you did what you needed to do. But the point being, that picture that I just painted for you, by the way, believe me, it was worse. Okay, But that which I just painted, that pales in comparison to the disgust that Christ has for the sin that is in our heart. The filth that is in this house. And this must be clean. Jesus indeed enters and indwells the heart, the house, if you will, when He saves us. But just as you might be comfortable and unclean whenever... You know, you're not very comfortable whenever, you know, the, you're, you're in the middle of the night and you're with a nurse and she says, um, don't sit out. She tells you that you, you shouldn't sit down. Why? And you leave the house, she says, you would have been packing bed bugs to your car. She said, I could actually see the bed bugs, right? The point there is not to disparage somebody for their cleanliness or lack thereof, all right? The point there is we, this, this, the house needs to be clean, right? Christ needs to be in a house that is clean, in a heart that is clean. This is for, and, and this is for us to do. This is for us to actively be doing this. Jesus isn't satisfied in this house until the sin is cleansed. 
Now, when we get to heaven, we can look forward to the fact that it will be cleansed at that point. When we get to glory, it will be cleansed. Now, I don't know about you, I can't even fathom what that's going to be like. Because if we're honest, there's some pretty dark things that go on in here. And I can't fathom what it's going to be like to walk into glory and for, there not to be, for that house to be completely spotless and for Christ to be completely pleased to dwell. He's not happy and He's not pleased with a dirty heart. He will not be at home until He's allowed to dwell in our hearts through that continuing faith that trusts Him to exercise His Lordship in every aspect of our lives, not the things that we take over here and say, no, you can't have this. You can have everything else, but you can't have this. No, that He has every aspect of our lives. As we go on from verse 17 down through verse 19, uh, 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. And then verse 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. So when we're strong inwardly then, when we're strong inwardly and God's Spirit is at home then in our hearts. So whenever we've got the strength, when things are going as, when we're doing as we ought, this leads to a love that is incomprehensible. Now, Jesus already loves us with an incomprehensible love, but then we begin to do that, right? Then we have the ability to start to do these things. When we yield to the Spirit, the result of that is love. That's what happens. The result is love. Christ settles down in our life, in our hearts. He displays His own love in us and through us, and then we are rooted and grounded in love. That's settled then on a strong foundation of love. Biblical love is a matter of the will. Okay, this isn't, you know, feeling and emotion, right? I mean, it's, it, it is that. They're the deep feelings and emotions almost always accompany love, but we can only have such love when Christ is free to work His love through us. This is whenever we're exercising faith, right? We cannot fulfill any of the commands of Christ without Christ Himself. We can't go out and fulfill His commands if we don't have Him, right? Least of all, His command to love, we can only love as Christ loves whenever He is free. And welcome, that whole welcome thing again, welcome to reign in our hearts. When the Spirit empowers our lives, when Christ is obeyed as the Lord of our hearts, our sins, our weaknesses, they're dealt with. We find ourselves wanting to serve other people, wanting to sacrifice for them, wanting to serve them. Why? Because Christ's loving nature has become our own. Now that nature has become our nature. Loving, that's the supernatural attitude then of the Christian because love is the nature of Christ. Even though it is unnatural for the Christian to be unloving, it is uh, still possible to be disobedient, to be disobedient in regard to love. Just as loving is determined by the will and not by circumstances or other people, so is not loving. If I fail to love my wife, it's not because of her. I think Josh said something about this last week concerning original sin. If I fail to love my wife, it's not because what she's done. It's, if I fail to love her, it's because of my sin, right? If I'm not loving her, it's because of sin. The absence of love is the presence of sin. The absence of love really has nothing to do with what is happening to me but everything to do with what is happening inside of me. Sin and love are combatants. This is because sin and God are combatants. These things can't coexist. Where sin is, God is not. A loveless life, a life that is loveless, is an ungodly life. The godly life, though, is the serving, the caring, the tender-hearted, the affectionate and sacrificing life of the love of Christ that is pouring out of the believer. It is then that we can comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length, the height, the depth of love that he mentions here. This is where the power pours from. This isn't some nice, warm, fuzzy thing. This is to be rooted in love and grounded in love with an actual foundation in God. Continually immerse yourself in the things of God. When Jeremiah found the words of God, what did he do? He ate them. That's what he says, right? 
Job said that he cherished the words of God more than his necessary food. That says something about the outward and the inward, right? When we think of what is ours in God as it concerns His power and that breadth, length, height, and depth, it isn't that these are just specific things necessarily, but it's more of a fullness thing. Height, length, depth, breadth. As you think of the power you have in Christ, you think of what's happened to you when you're feeling powerless. These words, height, length, breadth, depth, they're about vastness. They're about a completeness. Because what do we see? You know, if, if we apply this within this own book, and we in, in Ephesians here in this letter, what do we see? The breadth. We see the breadth in God's acceptance back in chapter 2. He accepted the Jews and the Gentiles, right? There's the breadth. Who does God accept? It's the vastness, the completeness. The length of God's love back in chapter 1. His choosing us when? Yesterday? No. Chapter 1 tells us before the foundation of the world. This is the length. And then, before the foundation of the world, to win throughout eternity. The height of this in, is in the blessing us with every spiritual blessing again in chapter 1. Then there is the depth, the depth that he reached the lowest levels of depravity. The depth. He reached the lowest levels of depravity to redeem me from my depth of depravity and my sin. The love of the world loves because of what it can get. Right? Christ's love loves for what it is going to give. This kind of unconditional love is something to aspire to. Whenever you're feeling powerless, whenever we find ourselves feeling powerless, maybe it's time to do some house cleaning, right? And that leads us to eliminating sin. It was in that verse 19. The love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In eliminating sin, being filled then with the fullness of God. If I am filled with the fullness of God, I am not going to be sinning. It's being dominated by God, being filled with God and emptied of self. Why? For His glory. Verse 20. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly then all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So in the summit of all that Paul has been declaring about God's limitless provision for His children, there are these verses then to praise God for why it is for His glory. When the Holy Spirit has empowered us, Christ has indwelt us, love then has mastered us, God has filled us with His own fullness, then He is able to do far beyond that which what we ask or think. Until those conditions are met, though, God's working in us will be limited. doesn't mean He's not going to do anything. But until we do those things, until those things happen, this is going to be limited. When they are met, whenever we do this, Whenever we strive for this, His working in us is unlimited. There is no situation in which the Lord cannot use us, provided that we what? Are submitted to Him, right? As should be pointed out, verse 20 is a sort of a, there's kind of a, 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 a pyramid progression here of God's enablement. He is able. He is able to do. He is able to do exceeding abundantly. He is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or all that we think. There is no question in the minds of believers that God is able to do more than we can conceive, but I'm afraid that too few of us enjoy the privilege of seeing Him do that in our lives. Why? Because we fail. We fail to follow the pattern that comes in these verses. Like Paul, the effectiveness of your ministry is that your message, and as he says, my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, he tells us that the kingdom of God does not consist of in words, but in power. This is about power. Everything Paul did was in the power of God. And in the power of God, there was nothing within the Lord's will that he could not see accomplished. Thus why Paul, again, did what he was able to do. 
I mean, I know we tend to put Paul on a bit of a pedestal, I suppose. Um, and there's good reason for some of that, but we need to understand that the same power works within us, that the same power is available to us by the presence of the Spirit, if you are indeed born again. You see the power of the Spirit. You know that if you are saved, this is the Spirit that works in you. When you yield to God, He is able to do far more than what you imagine. I can't believe that this has occurred. I can't believe that God has actually done this. I can't believe that God has put a thriving church in all places, Ferdinand, right? Forty years ago, people would have laughed you out of the place if you would have told them there would have been a thriving church in Ferdinand. But here it is. It's then that we're effective. It's then that He's glorified. He deserves glory in the church and in Jesus and now throughout all generations, He says. This is a worthy thing. And it's more so worthy than anything that we will endeavor in. Let's pray. Our most gracious and heavenly Father, God, Lord, we do again thank You. We praise You. Father, we are not worthy of what You have done on our behalf. We're not worthy of what You are putting out in front of us, what You are offering us, which is far exceeds that of anything that the world would even begin to offer. Even if we could gain the entire world, it would pale in comparison to what you are offering us, to what you are putting before us. And Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the salvation that is provided. But now, Father, there is more. Yes, Father, through Christ, we recognize we get you. We obtain you, the Creator, Father, as our Father. But now, Father, it is for us to be used by you. It is for us to be in the business of our lives being worthy, useful, glorifying you. And Father, may we do that. And Father, I just pray for this spiritual strength for all of us, for this church, for this body. Lord, that we would be used in Ferdinand, Father, in just ways that we can't even begin to imagine because... I am confident that years ago that this wasn't necessarily expected now. Father, may our expectation, may we recognize that we, can, we, we should expect far more than we would normally expect, Father, that because this is what you are in the business of doing. Father, use us for your purpose and empower us to do it. Help us to be obedient. Help us to be the disciples that you would have us to be, Father, so that we would be uh, in the business of your utmost glory. Father, we thank you. We praise you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed and were deeply affected by this week's message titled, Living in Spiritual Strength. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.